Well, good morning. Are you with me or not? Good morning. <laughs> My name is Alex, and I serve as one of the pastors here at Courtright. We are continuing this morning our series in the book of Daniel. We have followed God's people into exile in Babylon. We've watched on as Daniel and his four friends were chosen for a special training course, the University of Babylon, we even called it. It was an amazing opportunity for them, except there was a cost, and the cost was not just their freedom as an imprisoned people in Babylon, but it was also their identity. But they resisted, and so far we've seen them be faithful to God. And today we're going to come to another challenge for these young Israelite men. So let's pray before we open our Bibles to Daniel chapter 3. Lord, may the words of my mouth as I preach today and may the meditations, the reflections of every one of us here today be pleasing and acceptable to you. Holy Spirit, would you encourage us? As some of us drew, drove through fog this morning on the way here, pretty thick fog, I pray that you would dispel those clouds of confusion. We're all contending with them in one way or another. We all have questions and concerns we bring today. Would you shine your light through that? Draw us close to yourself. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So something a little different uh, as we prepare to read Scripture this morning. This story we're about to read may be familiar to some of you. Some of you may be hearing it for the first time. But regardless, I'm going to invite you to enter into the story in a fresh way. Imagine as I read these words that you are a character in this narrative, in this drama. Step into the story as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego imagine what they would be feeling, put yourself in their shoes. How are they experiencing all that's going on around them? And I'd encourage you to close your eyes if that helps you to listen better, to feel this more. So let's read from Daniel chapter 3. And we're going to read the whole chapter this morning, but we'll read verses 1 to 18 now, and then we'll pick it up later in the sermon. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 60 cubits high, that's 90 feet high, and six cubits wide, roughly nine feet across, and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon, this massive flat plain as far as you could see. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials. This was hundreds of thousands of people from every corner of this massive empire. He summoned all of them to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, Advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, Nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. 
As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and peoples of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship, and that whoever and must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I've set up? Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, then very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. This is the word of the Lord. So during COVID, one of my kids has really gotten into Star Trek for the first time. And she watched the whole of the Next Generation series. I'm not really a Star Trek fan myself. In fact, just two days ago, I committed the unpardonable sin of mixing up Star Trek and Star Wars. Shame, shame. I appreciate the heckling. I, I... But I have to say, as I've listened in, as I've eavesdropped on Star Trek, I've been intrigued by how the creators of this show present the future of the universe and fill it with all these new species and cultures. One of them is called the Borg. Some of you may know about this. They're half human and half machine, and their purpose is to assimilate all other peoples. They conquer them, they strip them of their identity, their will, their thoughts. And I thought about the Borg as I read this passage. Like the Borg, King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians were so power-hungry 
that they too wanted to assimilate every culture and race. And in this episode, in what we've read in Daniel 3, the king gathers all the leaders of his empire to this plain. And when the music played, they were supposed to bow down to the statue he had built. But there's more here than meets the eye. In verse 4, they're addressed as nations and peoples of every language. The last time we heard that expression was in Genesis 11, when all of humankind got together to build a tower to make a name for themselves, to be bigger than God, the Tower of Babel, we know it as. And did you wonder why our reading had the same long list of officials three times? Same thing with the list of instruments four times. It's tedious and repetitive, but that's the point. It's actually meant to be funny. It gives the impression of a lot of people, and scholars say there may have been as many of a million of them gathered on that plane. A lot of people marching mindlessly, saying the same words over and over again. Drones droning on and on. And the list of musical instruments is international also. It includes Persian and Greek words for different instruments. And so this orchestra reflects the whole empire, every tribe and tongue. The king is actually trying to harmonize and control all of those voices. To misquote John Lennon, imagine all the people living in a great homogeneity. That's what the king wanted, and he wanted to rule over all of it. And a fiery furnace was the natural consequence for those who refused to worship him. Nonconformists will be melted away in the crucible of Babylon. The message was clear. One way or another, you will be assimilated. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are in trouble. And some of their fellow officials turn them in. The text calls them astrologers. You can think of them as experts. They're certainly rivals waiting for an opportunity, and they get it. And so they tell the king about the defiance of these three Jewish officials. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have been faithful to God in the past in quieter ways. But here, their faith is publicly challenged, as public as it gets. This statue that the king had put up represented the supremacy of Babylon. You had to bow down to it. Now, you could have your own gods on the side at home. That was fine. But only in private could that be the case. And they could not be universal. Ultimate and exclusive truth wasn't allowed except for the king's version of it. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? In Babylon, you had to be like everyone else. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to go along with the crowd. And the king threatens to throw them into the fire. Have you faced pressure or anything like that before? I'm guessing probably not. We can be thankful that in Canada, we are not threatened with violent oppression. But... On a more global scale, Christians often face pressures to make difficult choices. I remember hearing from a university student in Romania 
The church that I served in downtown Toronto had a partnership with the Hungarian Reformed Church in Transylvania, in a city called Cluj, or Kolosvar is the Hungarian name. And this student told us of how her professors would expect a bribe or sexual favors before they would give her a good mark. Can you imagine a society where your teachers, your professors, can pressure you like that? And she asked us to pray that she would stand firm and trust God. And who can forget, six years ago now, the 21 Egyptian Coptic Christians in orange jumpsuits lined up on a beach in Libya and executed for their faith. Each of them said, Jesus, help us. It's so important for us to pray for the global church and for us to recognize that we are one church. When one part suffers, we all suffer, and we have so much to learn from our brothers and sisters in other places, more difficult places often. In the West, while we're not openly persecuted, not like that anyway, and we don't face pressure to bow down to statues and worship them. Nonetheless, idolatry is still a problem for us today. And we face much more subtle temptations to worship other gods. When we strive for good grades, when we pursue our careers, when we count our money and our achievements, we risk bowing to the god of success. When you're glued to screens on Netflix, playing video games, whatever it might be, are you allowing a god of entertainment, a god of leisure into your home? When you open the fridge, yet again, you know what I'm talking about? You just go to the fridge and you have a moment of communion with its contents. You stare into the fridge longingly. Is, at some level, the god of gluttony calling out to you? Or maybe when you fix your hair, you admire your style, you shop for clothes, the god of self-image is looking over your shoulder. Or if your eyes light up, as a friend of mine's did recently, as he sang the praises of the Apple M1 chip in his new MacBook Pro, were the gods of technology and consumerism active behind the scenes? Now, it's easy to dismiss all of this. After all, work, achievement, entertainment, food technology, these are all good things. They're God's gifts to us. But they're not the problem. It's the human heart that's the problem. John Calvin said that the human heart is a perpetual idol, of a factory of idols. And we believe in a deeper spiritual reality behind the obvious material things of the world. Everyone does. Everyone believes in things that can't be measured, can't be seen, right? Love, most obviously. As Christians, we learn from the Bible that there is a struggle at play. Some call it spiritual warfare. But the Lord is always ready to help us in those struggles, to help when we are tested or tempted. And he gives us the church so that we can figure out together where to draw the lines in our lives when it comes 
to the big three idols of money, sex, and power. And we do that by leading a creative, disciplined life together through worship, like we're doing this morning, through confession, through prayer, through reading the Bible, through putting the story of Scripture at the heart of our individual stories, through telling our own stories of struggle and victory, testimony, we call it, through fasting. I think fasting has become more and more important for us when uh, we face pressures in our culture, like maybe 100 years ago were not as prevalent. And through a disciplined life of service, we are called together to not conform to the pattern of this world, but to be renewed by the transforming of our minds to not conform to the image that our culture would set up before us and insist that we bow down to, but to be conformed more and more to the image of Christ. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego draw a line. In verse 17, they say to King Nebuchadnezzar, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. So they have obvious courage here, but there's something more going on. Those five little words, even if he does not, even if he does not deliver us, show us, that these three are truly ready for the fire. They have the faith that God will rescue them, but they're not dependent on the rescue. They're not insisting on a certain result. Rather, they're depending on God. We have a problem, all of us, I think. We expect God to get in line with our plans. So we cut deals with him. I'll believe in you, God, and I'll try to behave well, but your job is to watch over me and my family. Some false teachers even promise that God will make you rich or always heal you when you're sick. And if he doesn't, the problem is your lack of faith. This false teaching insists that God wants you well and prosperous no matter what. But let's remember the origin of this story in Daniel. It was God himself who carried his people into the suffering of exile in Babylon. Shadrach and his friends know that, and we see a true Christian theology of suffering on display here when they tell the king, even if he does not save us, we will not bow down to you. When you put conditions on God, you're bowing down to something or someone else. You want God and success. You want God and a particular relationship. You want God and whatever it is. But it's only when we can join Shadrach and say, even if he does not, that we are truly bowing to God and loving him for who he is and not for what we can get out of the relationship. How does Jesus teach us to pray? What's the baseline for Christian prayer? Thy will be done. That is the very heart of getting close to God and receiving his grace and peace 
worshiping him for who he truly is, not as we want to see him, not as we'd like him to be. And so we yield our will to his if we want a relationship with him. Let's read on in Daniel 3 and see what happens next. Starting at verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie them up and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in, in amazement and asked his advisors, Weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, Certainly, Your Majesty. He said, Look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble, for no other God can save in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. And this too is the word of the Lord. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are thrown into the fire, but God intervenes to save them. This might seem like just another scene from a Bible story that is hardly relevant to our lives. We don't encounter this kind of thing, do we? But listen to me, please, listen to me carefully when I say, you too will be thrown into the fire. All of us will be. There's no escaping it. We all experience suffering in our lives. You can hide from it in our culture like you've never been able to before in human history. And we're just going to get better at that, at sedating ourselves, at escaping from suffering, at self-medicating, at blaming others, at creating new ways through technology to not deal with our suffering. But we will suffer. God's word says it clearly. Listen to 1 Peter 4. 
Don't be surprised at the fiery trials you are going through, as if something strange were happening to you. Instead, be very glad, for these trials make you partners with Christ in his suffering, so that you will have the wonderful joy of seeing his glory when it is revealed to all the world. So the fire of suffering is nothing strange, or we read here that it should not be to a Christian, that it can even help us. If we ask the Holy Spirit to come into our trouble, he brings a better fire by far. And our suffering, we are promised, will even make us partners with Christ, will lead us into his glory. It refines us like gold. It gets rid of those impurities that hold us back from being in communion with him. Suffering enables us to love the Lord better and to love others. In fact, it forces us to do that. Let's be clear, God doesn't want us to suffer. But he knows that in our current state, we will not grow without suffering. If you have no pain in your life, you will not become the person God wants you to be. Suffering jolts us back into the reality of our needs and our limitations. So, have you had your heart broken? Well, God invites you to find healing and restoration in him and then sends you out to care for those who are in their turn going through heartbreak something you cannot do if you haven't experienced it? Are you grieving the loss of a loved one? Or is someone close to you sick or living with the challenge of a disability or mental illness? Well, in your weakness, in that struggle, you can turn to God who gives victory over death, who gives us hope in despair. And again, he will send you out and you will be ready to be light in the darkness for others who are suffering. Are you here this morning disappointed at how things have turned out, that your plans have not come to fruition as you hoped? Well, God is inviting you to depend on him through that, to trust him. Our suffering has a purpose, and that changes everything. For Christians, suffering leads back to God, and it leads us into the path of others. We're not saved from the fire for ourselves. Notice the, the three friends here don't change at all when they go into the fire and come out of it. They don't even smell like smoke. Did you pick up on that delightful little detail? It's the king who changes. God uses our obedience, our faithful defiance, you can think of it that way, to point others to his kingdom. When the powers say to us, you will be assimilated, we can say no and entrust ourselves to God's mercy. He is able and he may be willing to rescue us from the flames. What do we make of that mysterious fourth person in the furnace? We can't stand up to the pressure we face to conform to the culture around us. We can't come through the fire of suffering on our own. We can't do that unless we have someone at our side who can save us. And so the king sees an angel 
a man who looked like a son of the gods. And we know God is with them. As Christians, we know that God sent his son into the world to fulfill his promise in Isaiah 43, where he says, Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. This is the promise for every follower of Jesus. He went into the ultimate fire of judgment for you. At the cross, he took all of our guilt and sin and the sin of the world onto himself. We've bowed down to another. Every one of us has. We've turned away from God. But Jesus has paid the price and redeemed us. If he went through that fire for you, don't you think he'll be with you in whatever lesser fire you're experiencing today or have yet to, to face? If you suffer for what is doing right, and if you go into the flames, don't you know that God will be right there with you, watching over you, protecting you? So here's my final question for you this morning. How is God right now asking you to stand up in courage in some challenge you're facing, to not bow down to the pressure to conform, to confess him as the one true God and to draw a line saying no? How are you trusting Jesus to meet you in the fire that you are facing right now in your life? or the fire that will come. Let's take a couple of minutes to pray and to turn that question into a prayer. Lord God, there's no one in this room who is not right now being tested, who is not right now at some level going through a trial of suffering. Some of us are in the heat of that. Others of us, we're at a stage, a season of life when things are pretty good. But we know it will come again, or for the first time, perhaps. Lord, now in the silence, we lift up to you our prayers for your protection, for your guidance, Holy Spirit. Show us where to draw a line for renewed commitment to be together, to discern where the line should be drawn in our lives. Lord God, gather us as your church, even this morning. Holy Spirit, give us your truth and your grace. Give us Christ. Give us more of him.
And we thank you and praise you that you have answered that question. What God will be able to rescue you from my hand? In Christ alone. Amen.